ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and those who don't identify as either. You are listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. I'm in D.C. right now. Remember last episode, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm about to like run off and I'm just out. I need a break. So I came to D.C. Um, for my mom's birthday. I left on uh, really early on Saturday morning. Her birthday was Sunday. You know, I'm an only child and my parents get very territorial. So if I spend time with one, I have to spend time with the other. They never say this outright, but it's heavily implied. So I was home in July for my dad's birthday. And so I wanted to come home for my mother's birthday as well. Equal love between the parents so they know that there's not a favorite. But no, but she had a really good birthday. We went out to dinner at one of her favorite restaurants in Annapolis. Like it's right on the water. It's really cute. The sailboats are like literally right there. Like it's like right at the docks. And Annapolis is so beautiful. I forgot how much I really like Annapolis. Like it's a great place to just wander around and take pictures of doors and really great architecture and history. I've been very low key this trip. I've been taking pictures, but I haven't posted a single one. This is not like a see some world odyssey, whatever. It's just like, really, I'm in town just to like see my people. There's a bunch of people that I missed the last time I was here because I wasn't here for very long and I was celebrating my dad's birthday last time I was here. So I wanted to catch up with a couple people. One of my friends just bought this beautiful home in Potomac. One of my friends went to the house for a party last weekend. Her husband had a birthday party and he was like, yo, it's the nigga we made it house. <laughs> so when I pulled up to the house, like it's, um, it's a deceptive house. So when you pull up, it looks like a nice size house, right? A respectable size, nice house. And you walk in and there's a beautiful foyer and there's a, you know, a stairwell headed up and I believe a chandelier. And then you turn the corner and it's like, bam, the house is wide enough, but the house is like very long. Her living room alone is probably twice the size of my loft. It's all white and beige, which is very decadent just because like to keep beige clean, it requires effort. And I was like, oh, this is heaven. It's like the heaven house. Like It's so good. They've got this beautiful sofa. I would say it's like an 18-person sofa. Like, So if people were sitting upright, it's like a U-shape. The way we were configured, like I was on one side of the sofa, like all stretch out. And then she was kind of like in the middle part of the sofa. And then her husband was on the other side and he was like all stretched out. And so he's like, and he's a 6'2 dude. And you could have put a full-size adult stretched out in between all of us. And it would have been fine. Like no one would have been up on each other. Like it's the it's a gigantic sofa. So my girl was like, yeah, she's like, I feel like a real adult. This is like her first house. And I was like, you went from an apartment <laughs> to like a palace. <laughs> and she was like, yeah, you know. <laughs> but it's a really, really beautiful house. And me and my friend were like, yo, like <laughs> we were both like, yo, we need assistance. <laughs> like, and I said this before. Remember, I was like, I need a wife. Same thing. Like, I was like, an assistant, I have to pay. I was like, I need somebody to, like, help pay (laughs) some mortgage. I could swing a good house on my own, but I don't want, like, the responsibility and the pressure of meeting the mortgage, like, alone every month. And I was like, if I could just get somebody, you know, as a backup, like, I'll do it. But I just need, like, a backup plan in case, like, I, I slip. I just need somebody to be able to cover me for, like, 90 days until I figure out, like, the next big thing. And I still need, like, my general support. But I want a stay-at-home wife. I don't want a wife who's got, like, distractions with work and whatnot. I was like, this ain't going to work. Like, I need the wife to work so the wife has money. Oh, this is frustrating. My boy was like, he was like, well, do you want a husband again? And I was like, oh, that's more work on top of the work. Wife will support and build. A wife is autonomous. Ugh, I got to figure out this situation. So I was like, I want a big-ass house. I don't want no big ass mortgage though. <sighs> I hung out Saturday night with uh, with one of my friends. Remember the guy I used to go protesting with like over the summer and then like celebrating Biden? Like that was like our thing was like go down to the White House and like raise a ruckus. I hung out with him on Saturday. We went to get dinner and drinks and then we ended up at a cigar bar. I've avoided cigar bars for like ever. Usually that's when I tap out for the night and I'm just like, y'all go ahead. I'm good. But I was like, oh, okay. When in Rome be Roman, went to that damn cigar bar. I've washed my hair twice and it still smells like cigars. 
it was worth it. I had a good time. It was good company. But still, I'm just like, the hair. And I had my little pink leather jacket, too. I put the jacket in the freezer trying to get the smell out. Because, you know, cold usually kills smell. No go. The dress I had on, I put that in the freezer, too. No go. I Febreze the thing down. No go. I'm going to have to get a dry clean. Which I was going to have to do anyway. But but I'm traveling with these clothes. And I'm like, what if I have to wear this dress twice? Because I'm going to New York. To what, tomorrow? <sighs> we'll see. I'm excited about this uh, black opera. Shut Up In My Bones. Is that what it's called? Fire In My Bones? It's Charles Blow. Let me look this up. What is the name of this opera? I got tickets to the daggone opera and can't remember the name of the opera. Oh, if you can hear that in the background. That's the, um, I'm at my parents' house. So I'm in the burbs. They're cutting the grass today. Fire Shut Up In My Bones. That's what it's called. It's the Black Opera at the Metropolitan Opera House. It's the first one in the Opera House's history, which I was like, y'all been doing this for what, like 138 years? And y'all just getting a Black Opera? Um, They're getting their first Black composer as well. It's a lot of firsts for this one. But I was like, it took y'all long enough, didn't it? I'm reading here. ABC 7 in New York. So it says the Metropolitan Opera season opened on Monday. So that's important too. The opera season has just opened and it's opening with a black opera. So the Met has been shut down for the last 18 months, like a lot of things, due to COVID. Oh, and and the first black composer, jazz trumpeter and composer, Terrence Blanchard, which I'm familiar with his work from Spike Lee movies. I think he does the score for like, nearly all the Spike Lee movies, if not most of them. So the play is based on this book by Charles Blow, and it's a memoir, which I have not read, just to be transparent. It's, a, I believe, coming of age as a black man in the United States, which can cover a whole gamut of things. But one of the topics that comes up that is off-discussed, because I've been reading a bunch about this opera, he was sexually abused as a child by an older cousin, which is tackled in the performance. And ABC interviewed Blow, who was there for opening night, which was last night, Monday. I'm recording this on Tuesday, 11.45 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. But he says watching it wasn't uncomfortable. And I imagine he's seen several rehearsals, but he said of watching the story of his sexual abuse on stage, he says, quote, to be honest, it was more uncomfortable watching everybody watching me because they were so unnerved by it. They wondered about my reaction. He said that when he wrote the book, I'd already dealt with all of that. I don't have the residual trauma that a lot of people expect me to have. So, I mean, that's good that he's dealt with his ish, that this opera will not be bringing up things for him. I'm sure it'll bring up other things. There's no writers. Writers are always thinking and processing. So, And of being the first, the first black composer, Blanchard had this to say. He said, um which I think was a really smart take. He said, quote, of course you're filled with pride, but there's a certain sense of not guilt, but sorrow, because I know I'm not the first who was qualified. This is all very exciting. I cannot wait to see it. I think it's only running for eight weeks. So if it's something that you're interested in, you need to, you need to get tickets if you're in New York or get yourself to New York and get tickets sooner than later. What else is going on? While I was packing, like in the middle of the night, I was so tired. Friday, a couple of my friends from the East came to LA. So when I should have been at home packing, I was at the London gallivanting for a few hours. So I got home late and I had this early flight in the morning. So I was like exhausted. So I put on the latest Fenty fashion show, which I think it just came out to um, give me something to pay attention to. While I was packing. Does anyone else do this when they pack? Like I have to try on like all of my clothes. Like I have to put together full outfits with like all accessories, shoes, purses, jewelry. And then I can pack it away. It's like, okay, this is my outfit for XYZ day. And I usually pack by color. So I don't have to take as many shoes and accessories. So they can all like blend together. And I can also intermix outfits. Which means it takes forever to pack. So I was watching um, the Fenty Fashion Show, which is amazing. The first person to come on screen, it was, a, it was a white woman who, in my head, I was like, she looks like Cindy Crawford. But that couldn't possibly be Cindy Crawford because that looks like Cindy Crawford from 30 years ago. And it's 30 years later. And Cindy Crawford can't possibly look the exact same way that she did 30 years ago. 
and yet does. She looks amazing. I know I'm supposed to be watching the Fenty fashion show for, you know, the Fenty and the lingerie. And <laughs> let me say it the right way before y'all be like, you can't pronounce that either. Lingerie. Okay. Y'all be so extra with that. Ugh. Let me move on. Like, but I'm not watching for the fashion. Like, I'm watching the dancing because the dancers were amazing. I'm sure I've watched other Fenty fashion shows. But now that I'm trying to think about it, nothing is standing out. But the dancers for this one, there was a group of black guys with do-rags on. I think they were in red. They danced their asses off. And then Jeremy Pope from uh, Blanca's Boyfriend on season three of Pose, who I am completely and utterly terribly obsessed with he looks like he could be from tribe ely he's also a very proud out gay american which i was like i mean i know you don't like me but sir i like what i see in you like my eyes work your sexuality has nothing to do with the functioning of my eyes like he is physical perfection he is gorgeous he also looks like the son in um did you watch our kind of people I mean, Morris Chestnut, like, fine as fuck. Okay, we've established that. There's a guy playing his son on the show who looks young. I think he's playing a teenager. And, like, I was having a reaction to him. And I was like, ooh, do I need to go, like, turn myself in? Like, do I need to lock myself away? Like, am I a threat and danger to those around me? But no, I looked up his age. And I want to say he's, like, either 28 or 29. Although young for me, but legal. The Jeremy Pope is in it. Erica Badu is in it, looking, like, amazing. She just does, like, she's only in it for, like, two hot seconds. Like, she's on this elevator, and then she does her, like, strut around, and then it moves to another scene. Jasmine Sullivan is in it. She's she's performed. She sounds amazing. There's a bunch of people. It was really, really good. I didn't think the production value was that great, but I also am trying to keep in mind that, like, this is in the middle of COVID, so, like, you know, people do the best that they can. And just as an overall show, it was very entertaining. It was very, like, super inclusive, which I know Rihanna is known for, but it was, like, a little bit of everybody. Heights, body types, conditions. There was a pregnant woman, like, getting her life. I'm like, you know what, sis? You know what? You do that. God bless you. Trans representation. Differently abled folks. I don't know the proper names, but there was a woman who, um, it looked like her legs had been replaced. She strutted herself through, and I was like, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Rihanna looked amazing, as expected. It was really good. Do recommend a watch for that. I watched BMF the other day when I was washing my hair, trying to get the smell of the cigar smoke out. It's really, really good. And I know I said I wasn't going to watch any more 50 Cent shows because 50 Cent is just such an ass. Have you seen what he's been saying about Michael K. Williams? They had some sort of beef i'm a guess it's probably one-sided because i'd never heard michael k williams say a word about him but michael k williams was friends with somebody 50 cent doesn't like and so when michael k williams died which i was like come on bruh like the man died 50 cent has been like making jokes about his death or worse using it to promote his new show raising canaan So initially, remember Michael K. Williams, everybody, it was said that he died from a heroin overdose, but there had to be an official autopsy to determine the cause of death. So it comes out, he died of a fentanyl heroin overdose. Okay, just like originally said. 50 Cent's reaction to hearing this was, oh damn, he smoked that little blue cap out of jukebox bag. This is what he posted on Instagram and then said, hey, catch Raising Canaan this weekend. Are you serious? He said, like, some version of this, like, three different times. I was like, yo, like, dude, you're doing the most. Like, what is wrong with you? Like, I know he's a professional troll, and I know he has no boundaries. But I was like, this is bad even for you. Like, he, a man died. But 50, no boundaries, no limits. And yet and still, I watched BMF because, like, my entire timeline was raving about it. And I was like, is it that good? It can't be that good. So I tuned in to hate watch it. And then I was like, yo, it's giving me snowfall in Detroit in the 80s. They say what up though every five seconds. It's so good. It's about the rise of BMF, which I knew nothing about. If you'd asked me about BMF, I would have told you it was based in Atlanta. 
And the only reason I knew it was because when I would go to Atlanta, you'd pull up to Lenox. There'd be all these exotic cars parked outside in valet. And I was with my cousin and I was like, what is this? And she was like, oh, BMF, BMF is at the mall. And I was like, what is BMF? And (laughs) my cousin was like, oh, it's like a criminal enterprise. (laughs) I want to say that same day, this is like over 10 years ago, we were driving to the Cheesecake Factory and there was like a billboard for BMF. And I was like, I thought you said they were a criminal enterprise. And she was like, they are. And I was like, with billboards? And she was like, yeah, they do music too. What? You did the music under the same name as the criminal enterprise and put up billboards in the city promoting both the music and the criminal enterprise? BMF. But I didn't know they had like Detroit origins. I I only know about, you know, criminal shit from watching TV and reading books. Well, drug shit. But it's really, really, really good. In addition to the directing, which Tasha Smith, loud Tasha Smith, they get the Detroitisms as I remember them as a kid, right. Like my mom is from Detroit. So I would spend summers there a lot when I was a kid. And we'd go back to Detroit sometimes for the holidays to see my grandparents. And they had a big church. Like they lived on the west side and they had a church on the east side. So you get like a whole swath of of Detroit going between those two places and in that church. It was um it was a whole lot of everybody from a lot of different backgrounds in the church. But some of the things that I remember are like it seemed like everybody had a fur. Like everybody had a fur. Like it was just it's cold. Everybody gets a fur. It's not even like looked at as a luxury. It's just like it's cold. You need a fur. So like everybody had a fur. And I noticed that when I was watching BMF. And then they just got like the um A lot of the 80s that were very, in my mind, specific to Detroit, like with the glasses and the rat tails. The first time I'd seen an asymmetric with the crimps was in Detroit. Like Detroit is a hair capital to this day. A lot of black culture, um, as I remember it as a kid, was like based on things that I saw in Detroit. Whoever did the hair, the wardrobe, getting folks a raise, the script. Getting folks a raise because like it's a it's through and through like a really good show. Like I remember with Snowfall, I saw a screening of Snowfall at ABFF right before it came out, and I wasn't that impressed. I was like, mm-hmm. Snowfall's a slow build. This one, out the gate, is really really good. Highly recommend. I mean, be like fuck Fifty Cent, and then watch it, and then afterward be like fuck Fifty Cent. But goddamn, this is a good show. Highly highly. Highly recommend. That's it for my TV. I've been out gallivanting the rest of the time. I told y'all half of my gallivanting. The rest of it is my business. Although somebody wrote to me the other day and was like asking me something. And I was like, you know, I'm really not comfortable sharing that. She was like, you're a celebrity. You don't get privacy. (laughs) Like people have really interesting notions of who I am and what my boundaries are. And I don't think it's just me. I think people just, people just wilding lately in a way that like I haven't seen or experienced in any other facet of my career. And I don't know where it's coming from. I do know Mercury is currently in retrograde. I just posted something on my Instagram today that was like, you know, people come to me and like try to argue and I'll really just be like, okay, you got it. But this newfound thing, we're going to like test your boundaries like just for kicks i told y'all before i will curse you out and feel great about it screenshot it and share it i want people to know i did it and i'll block you i've said this before people are not listening i asked you before i'm telling you this time feel free to not like anything that i do feel free to post it and share it on your own page this new desire to bring it to me for my attention I don't care. I literally do the best that I can in the work that I put forth. I'm giving you my best. If it's not good enough, that's unfortunate for you. I've done my part. You can like it or not. Express how you feel about it in your own personal space. Stop bringing it to me. I will curse you out and then block you. That's all. What else is going on? Kelly Price. Kelly Price, according to Kelly Price, is not missing and never was. This story is so confusing. 
as soon as I heard like Kelly Price is missing, which I heard when I was like hanging out with my friends before I left, because one of them was the head of Essence. And she was like, girl, Kelly Price is missing. And I was like, Kelly Price is missing. What happened to Kelly Price? Turns out nothing, sort of. So there was a wellness check at Kelly Price's home. And after scrolling through multiple news articles, because everyone and their mother, like every major outlet is talking about Kelly Price missing and then not missing. I can't figure out who called the wellness check to the house, but there was a wellness check at the house. Kelly Price was not there. The authorities said they spoke to a boyfriend, but they didn't speak to Price. So Kelly Price's sister said she was worried because... Back in July, Kelly announced on Instagram that she had COVID and her sister, her older sister at that, said she hadn't heard from her little sister since she was discharged from the hospital before she was even fully recovered. So after the story started circulating that Kelly Price was missing, Kelly Price's lawyer came forward and was like, oh, no, she's not missing. She's fine. Don't worry about it. She's good. And her sister was like, nah, I need to hear from and see my sister. Like if she's okay enough to speak to you and say she's fine, she's okay enough to speak to me and her children, who she's also not spoken to, and tell them she's fine too. I need to talk to or see my sister. The sister went on Barry Reed Live. I mean, it's like kind of like a, I wouldn't say the shade room, kind of like a YBF For the gospel circuit, if you want some gospel tea, that's the go-to. So the sister said, until we physically see my sister, we don't know anything. She said, I'm just asking people, please pray, okay? She did a separate interview. She said, the last time my niece and nephew, Kelly's children, saw her, their mother, was on August 13th. My sister's children are young. I know that they're confused and I know that they're upset and I know that they're scared. I'm feeling the same way. Just please, Kelly, if you're okay, please show up. Go to the cops. Do something. But we have to see you physically. Kelly called Mia X and she told everyone, I talked to Kelly. Kelly's fine. Kelly still had not called her sister. So I was like, I I don't know what kind of family drama is going on here. Like, I feel like there's some there's a whole lot of background that we don't know, nor should we as the public family drama. If you want to resolve it, does not need to be made into a public matter. There's a lot going on, it seems. It seems like there's some unresolved family drama that has resulted in Kelly being missing, quote and unquote. I do know that when Kelly popped up and spoke to TMZ, who did break the story. And I'm reading this on Vulture because reading TMZ, the way TMZ writes, like, makes my head hurt sometimes. She did speak to TMZ and she said that she was recovering from COVID, which we we just talked about. Um, She says that at one point she was hospitalized and she was medically dead. She said she was discharged from the hospital receiving care at home for weeks, but she couldn't rest because fans kept coming to her house, ringing the doorbell and leaving items. So she moved to an undisclosed location. But she did say, I was never missing. And it's really disappointing that things have come to this. She added, quote, I am facing a very uphill battle right now. I suffered a lot of internal damage. And so I have a lot of rehabbing to do before I am able to be what I like to call concert ready again. I'm just happy Kelly Price is alive and well or on her way to well that she is recovering. I hope she makes a speedy recovery and is in good health sooner than later. I hope that these family issues that they are having can be resolved out of the public eye and expeditiously. I do hope that whatever's going on with Kelly and her sister and why they're not speaking is resolved. I hope Kelly speaks to her children because ma'am, those are your children. I don't know what's going on, but I hope the family can find one accord. What else is going on? R. Kelly was finally found guilty. He's been in court in New York for a while. We briefly spoke about that trial. The details of it were so disgusting. I think I read on here something about like he forced a woman to smear feces on her face and then eat it. And I was like, I feel disgusting reading this. 
and talking about it. Like, I can't imagine these poor women who were living it. But yesterday, Monday, a jury deliberated for nine hours before convicting the singer of all charges against him. There were nine counts, including racketeering and eight violations of the Mann Act, which is an anti-sex trafficking law. I'd say it was long overdue. Kelly's defense team, I was like, what are they paying these people to say these things? His lawyers, of course, we are disappointed in the verdict. I'm even more disappointed in the prosecution for bringing this case. He said the case was replete with inconsistencies. Sir, sir, I'm reading this story from the New York Times, which gave this, I would say, like at least 2,500 words. Like this article goes on and on and on. And in News World, like the more quote unquote important a story is, the more space and length they give it. So clearly they thought this one was very important. The prosecution's case featured an enormous pile of evidence according to the Times, including text messages that showed real-time worries that some of Mr. Kelly's employees shared about his treatment of women and several video and audio recordings, some of which appeared to depict the singer violently assaulting a woman and threatening her life. Among the witnesses were friends and family members of the singer's accusers, eight of his former employees, the minister who presided over his union to Aaliyah, a doctor who treated him for herpes over more than a decade ago, and a host of investigators involved in the initial arrest in Chicago. One of Kelly's tour managers, he confirmed a long-rumored tale that Kelly had bribed a government employee to get a fake identification for Aaliyah so the wedding could go forward because Mr. Kelly feared that she was pregnant and he could be prosecuted for statutory rape. Another woman, Stephanie, she told jurors the singer began sexually abusing her when she was 17 after he told her he liked, quote, young girls and that he did not understand why society viewed that as a problem. A cascade of witnesses. This is the terminology that the New York Times is using. A cascade of witnesses described a repressive system of restrictions that the women and girls around Mr. Kelly were forced to abide by from a directive to address him as daddy to requirements to obtain his permission to eat or use the bathroom. When the rules were broken, the singer doled out harsh and startling punishments from skin tearing spankings, mm, the feces again, to forcing one woman to smear feces on her face and eat it. This man is disgusting. Unfortunately, he is one of many, 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 many. I'm glad that he is off the street, that there are many more like him. So now we wait for the sentencing. I saw um, Deronda Price, and I think it's important to read her words just because she was one of the women that was featured in the R. Kelly documentary. And I think she wrote a, she broke her NDA to write a book about what R. Kelly had done to her. And she also testified at this trial and she posted on Instagram today, my voice was heard. And then the caption was today, the jury found R. Kelly guilty for years. I was trolled for speaking out about the abuse that I suffered at the hands of that predator. People called me a liar and said I had no proof. Some even said I was speaking out for money. Speaking out about abuse is not easy, especially when your abuser is high profile. However, all caps, I did it. Me speaking out caused a domino effect and so many people came forward. There are still some people that haven't come forward. I'm so grateful to be a voice for those who didn't have the courage. I'm thankful to stand with those who were brave enough to speak up. I'm happy to finally close this chapter of my life. I testified and the jury found him guilty. No matter what you think of me or how you feel about things, today, all caps, I made history. I want to see you be brave. I love that message from her. I also want to read one more. Tarana Burke, founder of Me Too. She also had some thoughts and she centered the victims. In her statement, which I thought was really important, she posted a pictures of herself standing with them. 
she wrote on Instagram. It's kind of long. I'm not going to read the whole thing. She says, um, this verdict was a long time coming. And although it doesn't bring automatic healing to his survivors, I hope it brings a sense of closure that can help facilitate the healing process. The real story here is about the relentless activism of black women who refused to let rampant, open abuse and violence toward black girls and young women fall on deaf ears. Black women were ringing the alarm long before the world knew what Me Too was about. It took all of our efforts and those of tireless journalists to get many to pay attention. We have shown once again that when we can't count on anyone else, we can count on each other. Simone Biles. I guess this is good black news. Good black news. Sad black story. She told New York Magazine's The Cut. I'm reading this on CNN. So it's the summary. But she says, I should have quit gymnastics before Tokyo. When Larry Nasser, that was the doctor who sexually assaulted her for years. When he was in the media for two years. It was too much. But I was not going to let him take something I've worked for since I was six years old. I wasn't going to let him take that joy away from me. So I pushed past that for as long as my mind and body would let me. She also talked about why she pulled out of the Olympics. She had an injury. It wasn't visible to everyone, but an injury nonetheless. And she was dealing with a lot like, you know, the guy who raped her for years being all over the news and everyone discussing him. Like, it's kind of re-traumatizing. Speaking of re-traumatizing, last week, actually, and the week before, we talked about Nicki Minaj and her husband and Jennifer, the woman that her husband raped and went to jail for raping when, when they were both 16. I talked about Jennifer's story. I talked about Nicki Minaj. I talked about, you know, the self-esteem you got to have to date someone who's a registered sex offender, which you would be surprised at the number of people who wrote into me and was like, there's so many reasons that people could be a sex offender. And just because, you know, someone is registered on the sex offender list doesn't mean that they actually like raped someone. And so you shouldn't make blanket statements like that. And I was like, you know what? I repeat, I am surprised at the number of people that will justify dating a man who is on the sex offender registry no matter the reason he's there he is and a ton of women justify it it's not just Nicki Minaj so many people wrote into me you don't understand there's a lot of reasons people could be on the sex offender list Demetria sure okay that doesn't mean you have to date them but another woman wrote in and she was like, you know, you talked about Nicki Minaj and you talked about her husband and you talked about this woman. But she was like, never once did I hear you say that what Nicki Minaj and her husband are doing to this woman is wrong. And I was like, that wasn't like heavily implied. I, I thought it was a given that it was wrong. I didn't realize it needed to be blatantly stated. You should not harass the woman that your husband raped. That's bad. Mercury got to get out of retrograde because people are like, that's not the point. The point is Simone Biles spoke up about what happened at the Olympics and she was describing her inability to compete. And so I'd heard it called the twisties and I'd heard it described as losing your muscle memory and like your mind and your body body are not connecting in the right way. Essentially, you can't control your body. So she gave a really great example that I think it would would really bring it home for a lot of people. She said, quote, say up until you're 30 years old, you have complete eyesight. One morning you wake up, you can't see shit, but people tell you to go on and do your daily job as if you still have your eyesight. You'd be lost, wouldn't you? That's the only thing I can relate it to. I have been doing gymnastics for 18 years. I woke up, lost it. How am I supposed to go on with my day? She had a lot to deal with. I'm sure that was as much like a physical ailment that she was dealing with. And she said as much as mental. Um, Because when she pulled out the Olympics, I think the team originally tried to say like, oh, you know, she's got some physical ailments and we're we're keeping an eye on it. And she was like, oh, no, I'm having mental issues. And she said in this article, again, to bring the topic of mental health, I think it should be talked about a lot more, especially with athletes, because I know some of us are going through the same things and we're always told to push through it. 
I hear people say all the time that like, you know, black women, like stop this, push through it shit, take rest, do self-care, like make sure you're good, put yourself first. And then when people actually do it, people are like, nah, what are you doing? Push through, push through, keep going, stop being lazy, you're being weak. There's a real big disconnect in theory and application. It's like protect black women, protect black women until, you know, black women need protection like Jennifer the woman who Nicki Minaj's husband raped. It's all protect black women, protect black women until a celebrity is involved. Like Nicki Minaj has to be held accountable for some fucked up behavior. And then it's like, man, fuck that black woman. Really? Protect women, protect women, protect women. This isn't a protect black women, but it's in the same vein. That Chris Cuomo situation that we talked about on Friday. The woman said, Chris Cuomo grabbed my ass. She produced receipts had a screenshot of an email from 2005 where Chris Cuomo apologized for quote unquote patting her ass. They asked Chris Cuomo last Thursday when the story was about to run. They said, Chris Cuomo, do you have anything to say? He said, I apologize for what I did in 2005 and I meant it. He acknowledged patting the woman's ass up and down my timeline all day on Friday when people were talking about Chris Cuomo was like, just because you accuse someone of something doesn't mean they did it. Just because she said Chris Cuomo grabbed her ass doesn't mean he actually did it. Chris Cuomo didn't do that. Chris Cuomo admitted to doing that. What are we debating? If Chris Cuomo actually did that, ain't no if. He did that shit. People are all protect black women, believe women, trust women until it's inconvenient to do so. Until you got to take a second look at your fave, Nicki Minaj, and be like, oh, is she doing some fucked up shit? No, I don't want to reckon with that. I'd rather just blame the victim. Oh, I love Chris Cuomo. I can't believe he would do that shit. Even though he said he did that shit. No, I'd rather just blame the victim. That's more comfortable for me. You did it with Cosby. You did it with R. Kelly and these young girls. If you had to rethink the way you thought about the man who made the soundtrack to your youth or blame some teenage girls for their own rapes, Blame the teenage girls. Fuck. The logic is so fucked up. (sighs) Last but not least, Will Smith. I like Will Smith a lot. I think Will Smith is awesome. Will Smith is on the cover of GQ looking like D.L. Hughley. Like when I first saw the cover, I was like, okay, D.L. Hughley. Why does it say Will Smith? I was really confused. Folks were like, oh my God, the Fresh Prince. Will Smith got old. Well, one, thankfully, Because the alternative is Will Smith's dead. That's how Will Smith doesn't get old. Will Smith dies. Also, Will Smith looks perfectly fine on his Instagram. This is just very unfortunate facial hair, angles. Like, these angles are real experimental. I was like, why would you shoot anyone from that angle? Like, the way he's sitting, posing, like, it all looks very uncomfortable. I don't like the visuals of it at all. And he still doesn't look bad. He just doesn't look like his best Will Smith. I was like, I've seen... Remember he posted on Instagram... And he was like, I've been, I haven't been working out during COVID and here's my COVID belly. He looked better in those pictures than he does on the cover of GQ, at least in the face. It's very unfortunate facial. It's like no mustache, but with a beard, which I was like, whose idea was this? Why did y'all allow this to either take it all off or put it all on? But I was like this half and half. You could do a mustache and not a beard. A beard with no mustache just looks strange. Exhibit A. Will Smith on the cover of GQ. But Will has a lot going on, as always. He's working on a movie called Emancipation for Apple TV, and it tells the story of Whipped Peter. You've seen this image. I know you have. It's an enslaved black man who has escaped, and his back is all welted up. Hold on. Um, If you... Read Beloved or watched Beloved, Toni Morrison refers to it as looking like a choke cherry tree. That's what it looks like. The guy's name, Esquire refers to him as Whipped Peter. I always thought his name was Gordon. And I'm looking this up now. His name is Gordon, but for some reason he's also called Whipped Peter. And it doesn't explain why. But the picture was taken allegedly in 1863. He died in 1907. And I'm reading the bio right now. It says Gordon or Whipped Peter was an escaped American slave who became known as the subject of photographs documenting the extensive keloid scarring on his back from whippings received in slavery. But if you look up Whipped Peter, 
or scars of Gordon, you can see the image that we're describing. But Will Smith is working on a film for Apple TV about this man. Smith says, I've always avoided making films about slavery. In the early part of my career, I didn't want to show black people in that light. I wanted to be a superhero. I wanted to depict black excellence alongside my white counterparts. The first time I considered it was Django, but I didn't want to make a slavery film about vengeance. I can't see nobody but Jamie Foxx in Django. Like I can kind of picture Will Smith, but I don't think it would have had the same like, oomph. But Peter, who Will is depicting in the film, is believed to escape the Confederacy in 1863 after a harrowing 10-day journey. I'm reading this from Esquire through the Louisiana Bayou, joined Lincoln's, he then joined Lincoln's army and then returned to the South to help free those he left behind. I say very often, like, I'm sick of the enslaved stories. Like, there's other things that happen. But if you're going to tell a story about enslaved Black people, like, I would like to hear something about uh, rebellion, escape, not just the downtrodden, like, woe is me, woe is me, which I think very often robs the story of humanity. It just shows the person as enslaved and nothing else about their life. And I was like, even as an enslaved person, they still had a life. What was that? Those are stories I'm interested in seeing. He's also, he's not working on King Richard. That's coming out soon. I've been seeing the trailers for that. He's playing Richard Williams, Venus and Serena's dad. It looks good. It looks good to me. Um, I've seen, you know, I've seen mixed reviews about just the trailer. I don't know anybody who's seen it yet. It looks good to me. I I am looking forward to it. By all means, Richard Williams was what old people call a character. And I'm looking forward to Will portraying that. Also in Will's wheelhouse is, and this is also in November. The King Richard film comes out in November too. He's got a new memoir called Will. And Esquire promises, quote, the world will receive the most unvarnished version to date of Smith's own story. And it's co-written by Mark Manson. He's the author of the mega bestseller, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And I was like, that's an interesting choice for a collaborator, for your for your memoirs, a man who is best known for not giving a fuck. Like, what are you trying to tell us, Will? Will said that he called Denzel and he said he, he understood 30s and 40s. And he said, but what what is 50s? I think it was Denzel told him that like the 40s were, you know, frustrating, which I was like, really? I feel like the 40s are way better than the 30s, but I'm only two years in. I've got a ways to go. But 50s, Denzel told him 50s were for fuck it. So Will is embracing the fuck it philosophy. This memoir is supposed to be him bearing all. And I was like, well, what does that mean for Will Smith? So he talks about an incident when he was nine. He said he watched as his father punched his mother. And he says that incident defined who I am today. He said his brother jumped up to intervene. His sister fled hiding in her room. And Smith said he froze too scared to do anything. He said because of that incident for decades, he has seen himself as a coward. And he says he has a desire to please people, to entertain the crowd, to make us all laugh. He says it's all rooted in the belief that if he kept everyone, his father, his classmates, his fans smiling, they wouldn't lash out with violence at him or the people he loved. I was like, Jesus, that's a lot to carry. He says the book also delves into Smith's accounting of a very deliberate, a very deliberate choice to become the biggest movie star in the world. He also talked about wanting to have a harem. Which if you've been, you know, paying attention to some of the blogs lately, there's much talk about this. He says that he wanted to, I don't know how this came up. They talk about he had a meeting with an intimacy coach and he told the coach if he could have anything in the world, he'd want a harem of girlfriends. And the coach asked, well, who? And so Smith is in GQ telling them with names who he wanted in his harem, one of them being Misty Copeland, the ballerina. He also wanted Halle Berry. And he said for the rest of the session, he and his intimacy coach sat around talking about what other women 
could round out his aspirational harem. And then they also had a plan to contact the women. Will said he loved the idea of traveling with 20 women that he loved and took care of. He said it seemed like a really good idea. And he said and then him and the coach, they played around with the idea for a while. And he was like, actually, that would be horrific. It would be horrific. Can you imagine how miserable I'd be? I want to know what led him to think it would be horrific and miserable. Because every day I sit on Instagram and I, I I watch men talk about how they need they want like two or three wives and polygamy and blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, can you afford three wives? This idea that you have three wives, like you understand you're expected to care for these three wives. Can Can you even afford like a three bedroom, four bedroom home? Minimum. For the wives, are you going to have these women all sleep in the same room? Do they at least get separate rooms? Because honestly, if you're doing polygamy the right way, they're supposed to have separate homes. But like, so for all of the women and then the kids that will come from all of the women, because part of the draw of this idea is that you're having sex with all of these women. So I do expect that you would have kids with all of these women. So like, we're talking really more like six or seven bedrooms. Are you going to have the kids all like bunked up in one room? Play this out in your head, sir. Like, you can barely afford yourselves. You might be able to pull off one wife. But, like, three wives and, like, it just say minimum three kids. Like, can you really afford that? Can you really afford to take care of six other people? That's a lot. Or is it like you want to be king of this castle, but you want the, the queens to work to contribute to it? I don't think that's really how, like, castle running goes. But, you know. I just always wonder how like these things like play out in people's heads. Apparently Will played it out and it didn't work. I would have loved to like, I would have loved if he like showed his work here, how he got from like, wow, this would be amazing to have a harem to be like, oh my God, no, this is horrific. I'd be miserable. And he can afford to take care of seven people. He says that his intimacy coach, what she was essentially doing was quote, cleaning out my mind, letting me know it was okay to be me and be who I was. It was okay to think Hallie is fine. It doesn't make me a bad person that I'm married and I think Hallie is beautiful. Whereas in my mind, in my Christian upbringing, even my thoughts were sins. That was really the process that Michaela worked me through to let me realize that my thoughts were not sins and even acting on an impure thought didn't make me a piece of shit. I wish that that part of the conversation was included in the very salacious bits of it that are running on the blogs about like, oh, Will Smith wanted a harem, Mitzi Copeland, Halle Berry. Like it was part of an exercise to help him get clear. And he thought he wanted all these women only to realize he would be miserable. Will goes on to say that he and Jada never had a conventional marriage, which duh, we've been new. And he says that for a large part of our relationship, monogamy was what we chose. He adds, we have given each other trust and freedom with the belief that everybody has to find their own way and marriage for us can't be a prison. And I don't suggest our road for anybody, but the experiences that the freedoms that we've given one another and the unconditional support to me is the highest definition of love. I was like, is that a long winded way of saying y'all got an open relationship? Like at this point, we kind of know that. I'm just trying to figure out like why, why you're like walking around it. Just like walk through it. Like we, we walked through it with you when y'all got on the red table talk and talked about Jada and the young boy. Og, y'all's kid's friend. Who was legal? Barely legal. I feel bad looking at anybody under 31. I told you even the boy from, um, so what's the show? Our kind of people. I had to go look it up and be like, I need to turn myself in. I didn't. Thankfully, I'll be here to podcast another day. But all of this information is coming out in in Will's book. He's just pre-sharing it with GQ. And the writer of the piece has read the book, so had lots of questions. He did also say, which I thought was important, he cleaned up Jada, which which was good of him to do. I wish he'd done it at the time. But he kind of left Jada out there with the August Alcina thing. Everyone thinks of Will Smith is like this really good guy, great husband, great father, all around great man. And so with Jada cheating on him and then Will publicly forgiving her, there was so much backlash for Jada. And was like, I can't believe you did that to Will Smith. You're a horrible, awful, terrible human being. How did you? How could you? How awful of you? Um, and Jada took a lot of hits. But in this article, Will pretty much says, 
that he's done the same thing. That he has also had entanglements. He doesn't use those words. He says, quote, the public has a narrative that is impenetrable. Once the public decides something, it's difficult to impossible to dislodge the pictures and ideas and perceptions. This is uh, GQ editorializing. Quote, because the impetus for Red Table Talk was August Alcina's disclosures, a viewer could have walked away thinking that Jada was the only one engaging in other sexual relationships when that was not, Smith delicately explained to me, in fact, the case. That's his way of saying it. Will also, he's stepped out. I wouldn't say cheated because there's a, a there's an agreement, but he's also had sex with other people. Jada's just the one that got caught out there on the national stage about it. He also clears this up. He says the meme that's circulating of Will Smith looking stern faced and droopy eyed that rivals the Jordan meme. Will explains it was midnight and we were going on vacation the next day. He noted that what they were discussing at the table at that time was years in the past. And he was like, no, no, I'm not sad. I'm fucking exhausted. The writer notes it was clear that Smith had more to say on the subject of he and Jada and their relationship. And the writer says, I could feel Smith rubbing up against the guardrails that he and Jada had established about what they would discuss publicly. He told me he talked with Jada, but when we spoke again a few weeks later, he said he wasn't sure he wanted to go much deeper. In fairness, there's a book coming out. And it doesn't make sense to give away all the tea in the book if you want people to go buy the book. So maybe he'll discuss it further there. If he chooses to, great. If he doesn't, he doesn't. Because honestly, none of this shit is our business. But I do think people have an expectation when there's a memoir that you spill all of the tea. I think that's an unreasonable expectation. I think people can tell you a lot, but they don't owe you everything. Celebrity, public figure, or not. Um, And if you choose to buy the book, then that's great. And if you don't, then still great. I think there's probably enough in this book without spilling everything that you'll feel like you got a whole lot of something. We'll see. I am looking forward to reading this book. I'm a huge Will Smith fan. I also like Jada too. If you haven't read the whole GQ piece, it's worth it's worth picking up and giving a read. Learned a lot about Will Smith that I didn't know. Hate the pictures. Love the Will. That is our Ratchet and Respectable for the week. We'll talk again on Friday. I'll be in New York. Mom is coming with me to New York to go to the opera. All right, y'all. If you haven't picked up your Don't Waste Your Pretty tees and hoodies and mugs, they are available on the site, DemetriaLLucas.com. That is really everything. I'll talk to you on Friday. Okay, bye. Bye.